All right, so this is InfoSecti coded number 48, Evidence as a Service. And we're beginning with Urban with the Olympic Broadcaster. Uh, yeah, so the Olympics are happening, if you didn't know. And the a Italian announcer didn't realize he was on the air when he was asking somebody nearby him for the password to the computer. Apparently, they're using uh, Disney characters as their passwords because he named Goofy, Poodle, and Mickey Mouse. Um, and then somebody like tapped him and went, shut up. But uh, now everybody knows. How nice. Yep. Well, yeah. But you'd have to have physical access to it anyway. His point is, why do they even have a password on this stupid thing? Which is kind of a point. I remember when I started with MS-DOS Network, all the machines had the same login and password. There was a login and password on your MS-DOS machine? Yeah, right. I think there was. But it was always the same on everything, and everybody knew it. I only 95 was the first to have that. And then you just put cancel to log in. 95 and 98 did that. Maybe there was no password. I remember when Windows 95 came out for a month, nobody could log in. So that must have been it. Something drastic changed with 95. I think we had to type something on the MS-DOS to get it going. Other than win. There was no win. This was MS-DOS. It wasn't even Windows 3.1. Okay, then, yeah, I don't think there was a password to to DOS. Okay. I remember you had... Anyway, it's a long time ago. (laughs) Anyway, Anyway, yeah, um, turn off your mic and make sure it's off when you're saying stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, all right. And Alan's got got the YouTubers with the anti-vax plot. Yes, if you've been wondering just how some of the... Uh, anti-vax disinformation has gotten so much fuel in the influencer space. The answer may be that there are companies paying influencers to spread these lies. Uh, A couple of prominent YouTubers, one French, one German, uh, have gone public in how they were contacted by a influencer marketing agency. I didn't know these things existed, but they do apparently. Oh yeah. Uh, One called Fazzy, in England offered them something like 2000 euros or something like that to uh, basically deliver not exactly a script, but um, highly, shall we say, uh, uh, structured information, disinformation about uh, the efficacy of uh, vaccinations and about uh, COVID. And both of these guys declined it and then went public Um, But it later came out that some other influencers that had also been contacted by Fazzy did accept the money and did produce videos uh, containing disinformation. So so journalists followed up with this Fazzy marketing agency. Uh, Turns out that it had it's part of a larger umbrella group, um, part of its operations, and one of its co-founders is in England. Another part of its operations and co-founder is in Russia. And that's where the trail ends pretty much. Fazzy's already closed up shop after getting this attention, but um, given recent global events and uh, some of Russia's other known activities concerning anti-vax and COVID disinformation, it sure looks like a Russian operation, a Russian government sponsored operation using Fazzy uh, to try to spread disinformation on social media. Yeah, that would be my first guess. And I mean, I think 
one way to look at the current chaos in America is that we're under constant Russian attack and it's working. I mean, most of the Republican talking points come from Russian disinformation and the lawmakers are even warned by the CIA and the FBI not to repeat this stuff, but they're doing it because it's popular because the Russians know how to make stuff that sounds good that people want to hear. Yeah, I mean, you have to give credit to the uh, Russian intelligence and the administration of Vladimir Putin. They know what they're doing. They are really good at this. They're very smart. And they're certainly smarter than a lot of American politicians, which actually does not surprise me one bit. Yeah, yeah. It's Ronald Reagan would be very upset at the current state of the Republican Party being willing yes. pawns of the Russians. Well, I, I don't hear much talk about Reagan anymore. I think the party has really forgotten about Ronald Reagan. He's no oh, longer. They relevant. idolize him. They, they see him as the greatest Republican ever after Abraham Lincoln. But you don't hear. But yeah, they, they can't talk about him too much without probably this kind of issue coming up. Yeah. <laughs> Although logic doesn't seem to matter much over there. Anyway, so China has announced that they're going to have, they're going to go to IP version six. They're really serious. In fact, they're going to not allow any new IP version four after 2023 and be 100% single stack IPv6 by 2030. No other nation has done that. Now, the United States um, government said everything had to be dual stack where it can support IPv6 and IP version four about 10 or 15 years ago. And there was a big push for IP version six. I was part of one of them, did a lot of talks and training on IP version six. And everybody said, oh, we don't care. We can just keep using four forever through NAT. And you kind of can just keep using four forever through NAT. There were a bunch of us that thought that was a bad idea. But, you know, it does seem to be true that you can just keep using four forever. <laughs> and anyway, but China is going the other way. So that'll be interesting. You um, know, the, the thing about six is that if all they did was extend the addresses, like we would all be in six right now. The fact that they had to make it so much better and so much different than four is what really holds it back. And it, it's too bad. It's very complicated, like DNSSEC. I remember getting certifications in it and teaching classes in it. It's a lot more complicated than just longer numbers. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea, I mean, and the thing is, it, it's very mired in its, in its time, much more than IPv4. So yeah. IPv6, the idea was like every computer will have its own address on the internet. Right. And at, in the 90s or the early knots when, when they came up with that, that must have sounded awesome. But in today's world. It was designed in 93. Yeah, yeah. So a projection that it would be 100% deployed by like 98. Right, right. But of course, today, you know, you tell people, oh, every computer is going to be addressable on the internet. And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> well, there are official IETF answers for that, I'll have you know. But no one cares. Yeah, no one cares. And yeah, no, that's that. Like I said, if it was just like, we're just going to take IPv4 and just extend out the addresses, I mean, we, we would be fine. But we're, we're getting rid of NAT. Like our entire networking structure is based around IPv4 with all our NAT routers and stuff like that. And if we just said, okay, we're, it's just going to be IPv4 with more addresses, whatever, we wouldn't have it. But they just decided to, to do too much with IPv6. <laughs> no, upgrading is nearly impossible. There are some other competitors. I briefly was pushing an idea from somebody for IPvX, a totally different system, I think 64 bits, that was like actually, the cool thing about it is it was backward compatible with V4, which is one of the obvious things. I mean, why didn't they make it backward compatible with V4? What's wrong exactly. with Exactly, that's what I'm saying. Like if they just extended it out and ideally made it backwards compatible, yeah. I mean, we would have it, but they decided that, that they were gonna make it so cool and yeah. 
The same thing happened to Python. I mean, when you don't make things backward compatible, everybody hates you for a good reason because they have all this stuff in the old system. <laughs> what they should have done instead of calling it like Python three, they should have called it like Python next or something like that. Because I mean, Python three made a bunch of great improvements and it is better than than two. But yeah, people are still confused about like, why isn't my code running in three and not two? And it would be better if they just, if Python 2 could just live forever and Python 3 was some new language and it could both live forever because Python yeah. 2 is so much nicer for many applications. Yeah. Oh, and then of course there's uh, the, the worst offender of all is PowerShell. Oh, I haven't noticed. Does PowerShell keep changing everything? Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of old scripts like just will not run nowadays because this PowerShell is so much different and they don't really document everything. There's no real, they, they, there's, there's technically a version number with PowerShell, but no one pays attention to it. So you just write it for the most recent version and then it works for a few years and then you write it again. So. Yeah, that's pretty gruesome. Especially Microsoft is usually the king of backward compatibility. And, I mean, it took a while for PowerShell to really, you know, take hold. So they just use that to change it around a lot, I suppose. But you can seriously take like uh, Windows 95 code and even DOS code and run it. I mean, anyway. Yeah. All right. So Liz has got unemployment insurance. Yes. Uh, so this is pretty interesting. Um, it's a, a really lengthy story, but it's a good read on... Uh, the explosion of um, fraud against pandemic uh, or against unemployment insurance during the pandemic, which um, I knew that it was up, but I didn't realize that it was uh, quite so uh, widespread as it was. Um, and, and there were even a lot more attempts than there were successful um, incidents of fraud, but uh, some of the stories in this article are pretty wild. Um, and, and one of the ones that really got to me was that um, folks were able to, essentially, um, identity theft has been commodified for a long time. We all know about that. But uh, uh, the um, usefulness of people's personal information really skyrocketed um, during the pandemic because uh, bad, uh, bad folks were able to um, steal people's identity and then sometimes even redirect their um, existing uh, unemployment payments. Like there was one guy in here who was getting um, unemployment in New York and then uh, his unemployment got stopped for like eight months because they said that he was collecting in other states. Well, people had stolen his identity and were essentially using this guy's information to collect in like Texas or something. And um, so he went uh, eight months without any unemployment and just about got evicted, just about wrecked his life. He finally got it sorted out in the end with um, the help of someone from legal aid. But uh, uh, this happened to quite a few people and, and it was surprising to me just the sheer volume of um, cases that there were. And one of, the, one of the descriptions in this article was that it was uh, the biggest internet crime in history uh, because um, all 50 states were targeted. Um, uh, the, uh, the federal, um, uh, pandemic unemployment assistance um, that was given out to like small businesses and employers that was hit real hard. 
um, people just stole millions and millions of dollars. I mean, it that was, was PPP, crazy. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, but PPP pretty much went to like the Trump family and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and other people who just filed these totally bogus claims. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate, you know, because there were lots of people in businesses that really needed that money. But yeah. uh, it went to um, it went to fraudsters, much of it. And, and you know, the government says, well, it could have been worse. We stopped a whole lot. We stopped a whole a lot, lot of it of went point. to legitimate huge corporations that totally yeah. didn't need it, but they were technically eligible. Yeah. Well, and the same with schools. I thought it was pretty crazy when they were giving away millions of dollars to schools that were not in any way hurting for cash. But yeah. Uh, there you have it. So, um, so huge ones like Harvard and Stanford actually gave it back because they didn't need the Brad press. Well, the Stanford gave it back. Harvard was shamed into it, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but other ones kept it. Like the one of the ones I, I read through the list back when that came out, and one of the ones that astonished me was uh, BYU. It was like somewhere north of like $60 million to a, a private uh, wealthy institution. So that kind of blew my mind. Um, but yeah, this is a good read, this article. It's in uh, ProPublica and um, it was a pretty interesting, it was a pretty interesting in-depth look into uh, the systematic ways that uh, people were using and abusing the system and then kind of sharing and selling their techniques to do so. Yeah. I, and I heard saw a number I saw before that 10% of the money in California went to fraud and it looks like other states are 10 or 15 or 17%. Correct. Yeah. And then, you know, to be fair at that level, it might be better to just accept the fraud than pay what it would cost to increase enforcement. But, you know, the problem is if you don't punish the fraud, it just grows and grows. Right. And part of the part of the problem, too, is and it, and it was outlined in this article and we already knew is that a lot of these systems are really brittle, old, broken and don't have the uh, proper. They're, they're just not built to handle the amount of um, users that they have and the, and the amount of people that need to get help. Yeah, that was a huge issue. That's why I started teaching COBOL. They said the computers can't process all the payments. Correct. Yeah. And um, that's still the same in, in many states. So, um, you know, it, I think we what we have to do, what we have to look at here is how can we improve these systems and make sure that we're getting money to the people that need it in a timely fashion, but also reducing the amount of fraud to build a more efficient socialist infrastructure. <laughs> well, you know, yes and no. You know, one thing about this is a lot of these people, this is their money. They've been paying this for years or they've been paying into the unemployment um, uh, system for years or decades. So, um, you know, yeah, some people call it socialism. Other people are like, well, that's your money that you paid in. So, well, that's, yeah, okay. Well, anyway, uh, I think what's going to happen is they're not going to do any more of this COVID relief money. And I highly doubt that Biden's multi-trillion dollar things are going to pass. So I think the demand for this kind of stuff is going to go back down. But I guess we'll see. 
Yeah. Yep. <laughs> anyway, uh, Caitlin, this one is amazing. You can't buy Alienware in California. Yeah. Well, at least certain Alienware. Talk about uh, socialism. The, I mean, this yeah. is almost like going to your house and taking away your Bible and stuff. I mean, what the hell? Yeah. No. First, they came for our computers. Then yes. they're going to come for our guns. They so are. The F yes. So the FPS review uh, has an article by Sing Mui, who talking about how if you live in California or Colorado and there are energy consumption regulations, you cannot buy certain Alienware Dell desktop computers. But anymore. you can buy a Bitcoin miner. But you, you well, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the thing is also Dell is a big enough corporation that they're gonna face legislation. Whereas if you go to some third party shack, maybe they can avoid regulation, but- um, so There's gonna be an underground market of smuggling Dells in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> underground market for Dells. So, um, so yeah. So the idea is is that of course that these gaming computers have a bunch of GPUs and uh, you know some high end CPUs and they take up so much power, um, you know more than you know usually like 500 watts or or something. And so that it is regulated and they say they can't sell these because they're not power efficient. So of course the solution and access isn't a bad problem to have is to of course build your own computer, which I highly recommend. <laughs> Isn't that illegal too? If it uses up too much power, um, I'm not a lawyer. I oh, can't say. Oh, it's like that. Is <laughs> <laughs> um, and 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 so so yeah. So now there's there's this big issue, and of course, um, and so Sam, you pointed out that uh, now there are servers coming out by Dell uh, using ARM CPUs that will deliver 57% more performance per watts. That's so why says for years. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it says uh, uh, Newton Rao, James Allworth, and Sung Park over at Cloudflare blog. Um, and the idea, of course, is that your servers are going to be taking up a lot more power than some gaming computer. And if we can reduce the carbon footprint of our servers, that would be great, especially because it really doesn't matter what architecture a server is, since pretty much all the server operating systems can run on anything. So. And you know, by the way, I think your your sleazy proposal might actually be legal because it looks like the law applies to selling it and shipping it. So building right. your own might be a workaround. Yeah, absolutely. And and I do recommend people all build their own computers, at least at some point in their lives, because it's a good experience to have. It's character building, especially well, but, when you put lots of rainbow lights in there. But I don't think that many power gamers are trying to improve their character in this fashion anyway. I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't pass them. If improving their character uh, gives them a, a plus one dexterity in, in one of their games, I'm pretty sure they would do it. Well, it'd be, it's definitely a good answer. I'm amazed this happens. I, I would think that uh, they would demand that you block this. I wonder if they can sue against this law or something. Anyway. I mean, but I mean, I'm just wondering, because uh, sir, sir, that these computers are not power efficient. Um, although that's under peak loads, under normal loads, I'm sure they're they're fine. Um, uh, what about um, kitchen appliances? Because those use a ton of power, and and the thing and heaters too. Um, so the thing about heaters that's that's really funny is that they are all 100% efficient. They're the only 100% efficient uh, appliance in your house. I used to think so, but some of the energy actually goes to degrading the metal and making it brittle. But right, yes, right. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's it's over 90, 98% efficient. Yes. Yes. And, uh, but of course it uses like 1800 watts of efficiency. Well, so. Because the goal is waste, you know? Yes. Yes. So the goal is to produce heat. Yeah. So yeah. all the waste, most of the wasted energy goes in the heat anyway. So it's, so it's very efficient, but, you know, efficiency does not mean um, 
it doesn't use a ton of power. So, well, you know, from a standpoint of cleaning up the planet, they're right because computing is a large contributor, like 10 or 15 percent of home use. So, they're kind of right that uh, the way we have uh, inner requirements for cars to not put out so much exhaust, we kind of need to regulate computers so they don't waste so much power. They're kind of right about that. I mean, yeah, but you would think it would just be just Energy Star compliance and where if you're not playing a game, you know, the computer goes into low power mode, you know, you're running on LCD monitors, you're, you know, not using, the, you're not stressing out the CPU or the GPU, everything's underclocked. Um, and it's only when you're gaming that you get those high spikes of power usage. And I, I can't imagine many people game for more than like an hour or two a day. I mean, there, I'm sure there are those super gamers who are out there playing Call of Duty for like eight hours a day or whatever, but that's so rare. I don't think it's worth legislating. Well, I think this is going to bring the nerds out, like taking away the guns from Republicans. Well, I mean, this is this is the thing. But no, no, no. I, the, the, like I said, I, I don't think this is going to upset the nerds as much as you think, because all it means now is you build your own. And I don't know of any serious gamer that doesn't build their own computer. Well, uh, maybe you're right. That would be good then. Then there's an educational value. Mm -hmm. All right. And so Urban's got Blaze. So what's this Blaze thing? It is a way to share files uh, by basically using torrents. Uh, as long as you are the host of a file, it'll be there. And then when you're no longer on that network, it's gone. So it's different. There was one we looked at before where you would send the file up and it would then be really like the torrents. It would bounce around through the browser and uh, you would have no control. Once it's out there, it doesn't need your original anymore. Here, here it, you still have control. That would be the primary difference between the two. And I guess, what's the difference between just having your own website, which amounts to the same thing? Is it just cheaper or what? It, well, it's cheaper because you're not paying for the infrastructure. You're just going on the browsers and sharing whatever you want with whoever uh, can see that room that you're sharing. Isn't Dropbox already the same thing? Uh, this is agentless. Oh, okay. All right. But you, no can, you can access Dropbox through the browser. Yes. Yes. It, it's just another way of doing the same. Okay. Fair enough. Another file sharing. Yep. I remember um, I remember when I started teaching blockchain, and so you know blockchain is just another way to share a file too, really. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so is it popular? Is it uh, got some huge advantage to making people jump on it? Uh, I don't necessarily see something that's amazing <clears throat> other than it it being agentless and can work on any browser can you share uh, big files no no size limit i guess supposedly you can as long as as long as you the host has that that share going you can share big files well that would make it popular now can you share illegal content and not get caught that would make it popular that's the that's the good question that everyone needs yeah. to find out well, I don't think they want to find out. I think they want to get some promises, which will turn out to be bogus. That was a story I didn't see in my links, but it's uh, where they turned out that a whole bunch of VPN got busted and they were totally had all the data in the clear. They've just been lying to everybody. Yeah. And all the encryption keys in the clear and everything. That's a. Uh, mm hmm. Yeah, well. <laughs> all right. And Alan's got one of the hot ones I named the episode after where the cops are modifying shot spotter data. Yes, ShotSpotter, a company and technology that's sold to police departments around the U.S., yeah. which claims to allow police to identify the location, the, first of all, the incidents and the location of gunshots to a very high degree of 
precision, uh, and which is incidentally also used in San Francisco among a hundred other cities around the country. Yeah, that's, how, that's why we had all that trouble with our network administrator, because they tried to connect the network to ShotSpotter, and that's why they had to go through a FBI background check, and that's when he got caught for his armed robbery, which led to the huge crisis with our city network about 10 years ago. Anyway. Oh, oh I did not know that. Huh. If you connect well, the network to the police network, everybody uh -huh. involved has to go through a background check. Oh, I anyway. see. Well, so the shot spotter is responsible for all kinds of troubles, not just uh, the San Francisco admin network admin. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of controversy about this technology, um, mostly in the way it's used. But now there are serious questions about the interpretation of the data itself and the role of the company in participating in prosecutions. Uh, there's an article here in Vice Motherboard about a, uh, an incident in, in, in Chicago, a murder, in which a man was shot in the head and another man uh, drove him to the hospital in his car. And the man who took the, the, the man, uh, the, the man who took the, the victim to the hospital was subsequently charged with the murder on the strength of shot spotter evidence. And um, uh, apparently the shot spotter evidence was modified at the request of Chicago police and the district attorney. Uh, as a matter of fact, there had been possibly a shot spotter detection of gunfire, but it was a mile away from the alleged location of the shooting. And it's also quite possible that shot spotter picked up not gunfire, but just fireworks. And there were a lot of fireworks being set off around that time uh, in 2000, this happened in 2020, rather, this happened in the summer of last year. Yeah. So um, after the public defender for the, this possibly good Samaritan, who dropped off the victim, pointed this out, um, the prosecution dropped that part of the, the evidence. They, 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 uh, rather than having that come under scrutiny by the judge, they simply dropped it altogether. And as it turns out, this is not the first time that uh, such maneuvers have come to light in, uh, in legal proceedings. Um, in multiple cases, it turns out ShotSpotter has been requested, explicitly requested by police to modify or reinterpret uh, data and evidence that they have through the ShotSpotter system. Things like uh, reinterpreting sounds as uh, uh, gunfire that weren't initially classified as gunfire or adding additional shots um, uh, that previously had not been identified in the recordings. And then testifying to this effect. Yeah. So it's not just the fact that uh, the prosecution is, uh, prosecutors are asking ShotSpotter to change their evidence, but it also has to do with the classification of the so-called gunshots in the first place. And um, according to a MacArthur Justice Center analysis, um, over a 21 month period, 89% of the ShotSpotter alerts in Chicago led to no evidence of a gun crime. And 86% of those alerts led to no evidence a crime had been committed at all. So yep. once again, it's one of these technologies that's touted as a solution to crime, and it may not be very effective at that at all. 
and it may also be um, highly, uh, shall we say, persuadable by police and prosecution so that the evidence can be shaped to fit a narrative and to win the conviction that may be entirely unjust. Alan, um, I submitted the same story as you. You just beat me to it because it was a really good one. And one of the things that stood out to me <clears throat> about the story was the case from Rochester, New York. Um, where uh, the cops had pulled over, they were looking for a suspicious vehicle. They pulled over the wrong car and shot a guy in the back three times and then tried to say that he had fired at police first on the basis of the shot spotter evidence, um, which didn't hold up. And I thought one of the most interesting points was repeatedly the guy who'd um, been shot and accused of shooting at the police uh, requested multiple times uh, for them to test his hands and clothing for gunshot residue and they refused. Um, and to me, that really stood out as one of the ways that, um, you know, and I've seen this again and again, um, one of the ways that um, co evidence collection can really uh, uh, dictate the, the direction of a case. And, um, you know, when we're looking at, at admissibility of these things in court, um, you know, I think there may be, I hope that there may be a trend towards looking at, uh, looking at it from a holistic perspective and trying to see, okay, well, what, what evidence can you, should you have collected in this case? And why are you, directing us to rely on just this one uh, AI solution that uh, you've, you've manipulated, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point, Liz, because it seems in that particular case, the police knew that by testing the victims, the shooting victims, clothing and hands for residue, that it would be exculpatory. And so they made a decision to not test in the first place so as to uh, constrain the body of evidence. And as you said, to then essentially cherry pick the shot spotter evidence and then to ask shot spotter, they actually asked shot spotter to reclassify sounds in the recording to then strengthen the case against this, this man who was shot three times by police. Um, yeah, didn't they ask them to reclassify like helicopter noises or something as gunshots? Right, yeah. And so it's not really AI at all. It always comes back to human interpretation. And I don't know what their internal processes are, of course. But um, in this article, uh, the shot spotter's expert witness, a man by the name of Paul Green, an employee of the company, um, testified that... Um, that he was able to, quote, find a fifth shot, another uh, shot in the recording. So that, that really undermines the whole argument of shot spotter in that it's a AI powered, completely impartial, um, entirely objective technology that can be trusted by everyone. Right, and where's the line seems awfully blurry between human assist, like maybe the Maybe the AI hasn't been trained well enough to uh, differentiate these sounds uh, to know whether they're shots or not versus evidence tampering. Yes, right, right. Yeah. So 
I, I have to wonder if any of the so-called evidence being generated by ShotSpotter is trustworthy, reliable. It might be all humans. Apparently manipulated by humans. This reminds me of the first generation of voting machines where nobody knew how to get the votes off them. So they would just take them to a warehouse and the manufacturer of the voting machine would just work on them secretly for a week and then tell you what the total was. <laughs> and you know, when you have a new technology and they don't think about an audit trail, then you end up just trusting somebody to tell Good you. Thing what we have cyber ninjas here to uh, yeah. make sure all yeah. the voting machines. The, the, the routers, 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 yeah, routers. But you know, this goes all the way back. There, when I taught forensics, there was a case like 15 years ago in Pennsylvania where a chemist had just been falsifying evidence for like 15 or 20 years, framing whoever the cops wanted him to frame, and they loved him. And it wasn't until they had like a junior technician who actually had real training get in the lab and say, wait a minute, he's not even using the right chemicals. He's not even doing the right tests. He didn't prove that. He just wrote on the form. He proved that this blood matched that blood. He didn't even know how to do the test. And this went on for decades. It's a lot of that's happened. So a lot of scientific based forensics is uh, pretty fraudulent. And there's a lot of innocent people in jail. <laughs> anyway. Um, all right. And I've got... Uh, a student who hacked Shopify in a very simple way. Some third party put out an app that uses Shopify and they just left the API key in the app. So he found the API key. And I did this with last time I taught mobile friendship, we found a bunch of API keys and then I wasn't sure how to test them to see how much it mattered. But he went and tested and found out he had total control over the code base at Shopify and he could put malware in the code base and everything. So he told them and that didn't happen. And so they paid him 50 grand. So that's pretty cool. That's a really common bug. Like, you know, I, I, people leave passwords just blowing around in mobile apps and they use, leave API keys in there too. <laughs> anyway, and then uh, Liz has got the Freedom Phone. Yes, so uh, <laughs> there is a new, uh, a new telecommunications device being marketed uh, to, um, <laughs> folks in our country, you can buy yourself a $500 Android. Uh, 5,000? 500. 500, okay. Which it may as well be because it's like a $100 phone. Uh, but, uh, and, and really the problems that you're going to incur by using this thing are probably going to end up costing you a lot more than $500. But uh you can go buy yourself the Freedom Phone uh, if you want to make sure that you've got uh, an uncensorable uh, tech, tech platform for you and your to communicate with your hardcore right-wing friends. Um, it's a phone that's made uh, for conservatives by conservatives uh, in the uh, People's Republic of China. And... Uh, it, it was. Does this mean nobody can take an app out of the store? Is that what it means? Well, the hilarious thing about this is, is that they claim that there's like uh, there's an uncensorable app store, but all it is is a skinned. All it is is a client that uh, connects to the Google Play Store. So, so Parler, if Google takes Parler off, it's off the Freedom Phone too. Uh, I would think so. Uh, I would think that would be how that works. So, um, you know, it's not like, uh, but it's free. It makes it gives you the freedom. 
but I mean, you could you could totally have another repository. You can have off. You can have third-party repositories for for apps in Google. Right. Um, all of the people that said uh, that it was um, uh, all of the people that have have played with this so far said that. Uh, you know, basically, it, it seems to be piping in the the Play Store, and the none, no one from the uh, the Freedom Phone company have been have demonstrated how you might uh, download a band app. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, I uh, I'm interested. I, I'm I'm interested. I'm I'm very interested in this. Not interested enough to send them five hundred dollars to buy one. But uh, it comes with um, it comes with like Parler installed already, and also Newsmax and OANN and all that crap, uh, so that you can get your um, confirmation bias right away. Um, and uh, uh, it's interesting too because this whole thing was. Um, started by a, a crypto bro who claims to be uh, world's youngest uh, Bitcoin millionaire. And, uh, you know, I mean, I will say this, it's, it's, it's not a dumb idea because I'm sure that he will make lots of money off of really stupid people who buy this device. Yeah. Uh, and because a fool and their money are soon parted. And I mean, you, it's harder to think of a better target market for a scam like this. Yeah, there's so many scammers scamming the mega people, primarily Trump, but a whole bunch of other people also scamming them. Yeah, uh, apparently um, they, uh, <laughs> they, they are, have been slowly losing uh, pay gates. Uh, they, they at first started out with Apple Pay, Google Pay, Venmo, PayPal, Discover, and a bunch of other payment options, but now they're down to either Amazon Pay or Shopify. Wait, they put Apple Pay on the phone? On an Android well, phone? No, their website to, oh. order, these, to order these things. But, oh, okay, so because um, they're a scam, all the payment people have, have banned them. Correct, correct. Pretty sure you have to buy it in Bitcoin. Yeah, that didn't take, it did, and it didn't take very long. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what I'm hearing is we need to make a, a freedom payment system. That's Just called Bitcoin. That's Bitcoin, I think. Um, but, but not saying it's Bitcoin. It, it's freedom coin. Well, that's you can totally make a cryptocurrency. They should have a mega cryptocurrency. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say a great name for a cryptocurrency would be a conserva coin. Yeah, or don't yeah. they have a don't they have a Trump coin or something by now? It seems like they would have to. I'm sure they do. Um, one of the best things about this to me was that they, the guy who's, uh, the, the carny who is selling this, basically uh, he goes, oh, we designed this uh, between my, my design lab and our partner in Hong Kong to make a phone that is custom, but it's, actually just a rebranded $120 uh, Chinese Android that you can get off AliExpress. <laughs> I think all those red bag of hats are from China too. Uh, the amusing thing was what first time we went there, they were selling them and uh, they were selling them uh, outside uh, Tiananmen Square and outside the Forbidden City. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty awesome. Yeah. 
the whole thing is a scam from start to finish. Yeah, and I mean it's definitely profitable. Um, a fool, a fool and their money are soon pardoned. So. Yep. All right, and Caitlin has got more lying cops. Yes, and uh, and so this this really tailgates off of um, Alan's uh, shot spotter story. Um, it's by uh, TNW News. Uh, it's called the article is called "Lying Corrupt Anti-American Cops Are Running Amok with AI." Uh, Pandora doesn't go back into the box. Written by uh, Tristan Green. And so it, it actually, this article does talk a little bit about ShotSpotter, but it also goes beyond that. Um, so one of the things that cops can do nowadays is take a picture of you on their phone. And then that then gets, gets them an ID, which then goes to another application, which pulls up your entire history, like an entire profile. So it'll say like where you've worked, um, you know, what if you've been arrested before, your military history, uh, your, you know, your health records, legal records, travel history, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, all this data is going to the cop's mind when they're deciding what to do with you. And normally this would, this would require a warrant from a, uh, from a judge to go and grab that information. But now it's just all on their phone. And there's a lot of Fourth Amendment, I guess, questions about, about how, how this is being used. Um, and how this is coloring how police are handling certain situations. So if you, for example, have a colored history, regardless of how good you've been in the past, you know, several years or whatever, but if you had a color history, colored history where you were in your youth, you know, robbing banks and getting DUIs and stuff like that, and suddenly a cop comes up to you, pulls up the phone, you know, takes your picture, and then gets all this history about this person um, has a history of you know, as a long arrest record and all this stuff, suddenly they're, they're not going to trust you, right? They're not going to treat you with the same, um, same respect than if they did the same thing and it came up as this person's a Harvard graduate who has no record of, of crime, you know? And so, uh, and, and so this can definitely be abused by police who then start acting as judge and jury uh, on the spot, deciding whether or not you're guilty based on, you know, what they're getting based on the information they're getting from these apps. Um, and the article comes up with a very good framework to understand you know, where this is coming from. And it's called, the, the, the author describes it as ignorance-based capitalist apathy. So the idea is that the, the companies that are producing these AI, AI software don't necessarily know what it's, the AI software is going to be used for. Uh, they just know there's a lot of good money in it. So they send it out to the cops. They don't really think about the consequences and they don't want to know about the consequences because they're just rolling in the money. <laughs> well, this is what NSO does, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, I, had a, I had a discussion with a former friend who worked at Palantir who basically said exactly what you just said, Caitlin. He doesn't care. He just cares about the good money. Well, this right. is what all arms dealers say, right? I sell you a gun. I'm not asking any questions what you're going to do with it. In fact, I'd probably rather not know what you're going to do with it. Um, right. Kim, you know, one of the things that jumped out to me about this story was that, uh, and that I hadn't thought about with this stuff, was that it includes your financial data. So it'd be pretty easy for a cop to, crooked cop to be like, oh, you, I see you've got money in the bank. Well, you're going to pay me uh, everything that's in your account or you're going to jail. As usual, I must speak up from the fascist position. This could actually help a cop to serve that somebody is dangerous. 
and you better be careful in dealing with them. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's the thing with all these technologies is yeah. that, um, you know, in the right hands, this yeah. stuff could be really useful, right? Like being able to identify someone right away. And, and if you're a, a non-corrupt cop and you want to know their history, totally, this could be useful. The problem is, is that there are corrupt cops out there and there are bad apples. We can't weed them all out. And it's just can get abused by, by the bad cops. And so how do you, how do you have, you know, and, and there's also of course cops that, and we discussed this already in the podcast, you don't really understand how these technologies work. Right. right? And, and they're going to trust them too much and et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's all, that's all the tubes, right? Wrong. Yeah. What? All, all the tubes, right? How all the tubes interconnect. Right. Yeah. No, this, this reminds me of the movie sphere where they, 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 these people get awesome power and they say, can you imagine what will happen if this power falls in the wrong hands and the psychologist and the group says, we are the wrong hands. We're already handling it wrong. <laughs> Entity. But very few people have enough uh, insight to realize when they're doing wrong things. Yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, you know, when I do incident response at work, uh, I'm, all, I'm often, you know, very, I, it never even occurs to me to to try to do anything other than you know what is a virus on the system can i check it out i don't care what you've been doing whatever um but apparently there are people like that who who would love to be able to just go through people's computers and like figure out what what websites they've been going to and it's like i don't get it i really don't well also you will find that by mistake i mean that's how the the dean of the harvard divinity school got caught he complained that his hard drive is full. So they came in and had to move all the porn to another drive. And then they like, hey, dude, why is this thing full of porn? Yeah, but, but the thing is, is, is like, even if, if I were in that case, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't care. I wouldn't tell anyone if, if I accidentally saw porn. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you just don't, you just don't, why, why I don't know. They're, they're just corrupt people out there and, and not everyone's corrupt. I get this myself. I don't have any, any desire to go through people's personal stuff or view their web history or anything like that. But, but there are correct people out there. And I wish there was a way that, that we could, you know, have tools available for people that aren't corrupt, but somehow also stop the corrupt people from having access. So I don't. <laughs> well, this is why you need like regulation and oversight and auditing of privileged access and stuff like that. Good point. Which it doesn't happen very much, but it should. Anyway, all right, then Irvin's got uh, the lawsuits for ransomware. Yes, so first came the ransomware and the money to either pay the ransom to get the stuff back or the fight to get it back. And now the people who were affected by those that downtime are suing those companies who were ransomware because of their lack of security. Now, this is an interesting idea. I mean, because I don't think anybody can quantify what you should have done to stop the ransomware, right? It's not like there's a standard. Right. There's no standard. There are guidelines, but there's no so standard. How could they prove that you're too lax? If because there's like a standard, like compliance standard that you should have met. I mean. Right. So that, that's going to be interesting. But yes, people are are like the um, the gas stations who were affected by the Colonial Pipeline. Yeah. They're suing. They're suing Colonial Pipeline for their downtime. Well, I mean, in general, you can accuse people of like gross negligence and say you failed to properly prevent this thing that you should have seen coming. But I think in the cyber world, it's going to be awful hard to prove that. Yeah. So that, but that's their argument. That's what they're going to throw. And let's see if that if that uh, gains any traction. 
Yeah, well, I'm glad to see it, really, in that regard. I mean, it may help move us towards standards, but the problem is uh, I don't know what standards should be. Right, right. Yeah. It's one of those things to watch. Oh, as, yeah. As it unfolds. This is part of what moves us towards security metrics. Mm-hmm. All right, and Alan's got uh, the NSA. <laughs> yes, and in what might be the largest revelations since the Edward Snowden leaks, uh, Emily Kroos, an FOIA, Freedom of Information Act researcher, has obtained information, emails from the NSA that show incontrovertibly that the food at the NSA cafeterias suck and that they have been raising their prices recently. And this has led to great discontent among the NSA employees. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, soda went from a price of $1.95 to $2.07, possibly because of a misapplied sales tax. So clearly discontent is rising at the NSA due to the low quality food provided by Sodexo, which is a French conglomerate that does cafeteria food uh, worldwide. And who knows, maybe this is also contributing to some of the cybersecurity failures and lapses that the American government has suffered from recently is that their employees are not being properly fed and are being overcharged for their chicken and fried eggs. Well, they could give them MREs and that'd shut them up in a hurry. Well, you know, it's interesting you should mention MREs because uh, apparently one uh, employee compared their NSA cafeteria experience unfavorably to eating on a military base. Well, but that's not the same as MREs. Everybody hates MREs no. as far as I can tell. MREs are awesome. I've never had them. I just see a lot of complaining about them. I mean, they're, I love MREs. I know lots of people that like them. Um, they're, they're just like microwave meals, but like, you know, not. <laughs> okay, then there's the, the astronauts eating like beef stroganoff in a toothpaste tube. Once again, that's not as bad as it sounds. All the all the astronaut meals are are planned and prepared by like chefs on the ground who you don't have to deal with the fact that it's gonna be in space, but it's all like prepared specifically for each astronaut. Like if an astronaut has a bad reaction to like certain cheeses, like they just want, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's not gourmet food, but it's also like, like really impressive. Okay, well, good. Anyway, I got this uh, quantum entanglement as a service. This company will sell you entangled photons delivered over fiber optics, two locations. And I can't figure out what to make of this. Alero quantum, uh, the quotes, from what this guy says, make it sound like he does not understand quantum mechanics at all, but it could just be that the author of the article doesn't understand it. Because anyway, it's, it is very unclear exactly what good these entangled photons are and exactly what you could do with them. Uh, but anyway, there's people that want to move uh, qubits from one end of a wire to another, and they want to do it by either teleportation or entanglement. And uh, both of those are technologies that exist, but they both don't exactly do what you'd like them to do. It's not as simple as being able to put information in one end and get it out the other end. It's not that simple at all. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, uh, I'm, we're gonna see what happens, but this is highly experimental at this point. Uh, some kind of distributed quantum networks over a large distance where you can do some kind of quantum calculation there 
Um, it's not as simple as data transmission at all, but we'll see what comes to this, if anything. Anyway, and then uh, Caitlin has got the last one, which is disinformation for hire. Nope, nope, no, nope, I don't. So don't? we already went over this. Uh, oh, this is the same is, one we had before. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the same one we had before. So this, this, this is just going over the fact that you can, instead of hiring a PR firm, um, you can apparently now hire people to lie for you, which we already covered, covered with that uh, yeah. Moscow stuff. So instead, I'm gonna pull a switcheroo. All right. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, an article on The Verge, and um, it's all about how DuckDuckGo is launching a new email service. Oh. So you would get an at duck.com. And you know, it's not every day we get a new email service that's like, oh, we should sign up for this. Uh, the last time that happened was when Google came out with Gmail, and everyone was like, ooh, we get gigabytes of email service for free? Yeah. Oh, what could possibly go wrong? They won't ever try to advertise to us or anything in our emails or private emails. But um, you look confused, Sam. Are they sending spam? In well, the no, what, what they do is they they, they, tie, they tie ads based on what's going into your inbox, meaning they obviously have access and- Well, sure, okay. You know, putting- well, that's not the same thing. Or, no. Well, I mean, they're, you know, using private data in your private email account to target ads at you. Anyway. Yeah, they are, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> um, so DuckDuckGo is offering a new service now. So you can get an ad duck.com email address. And what's really cool about this is that it will block uh, uh, trackers in emails as well. So not only is it from DuckDuckGo, which, which does not collect your data and everything, um, it also has protections against other people sending you emails to collect your data, which I think is really cool. So, and is it free? It is free. How does DuckDuckGo make any money? Um, um, that's a good question. Oh, uh, I they, read an article about that. Uh, how they? Oh, they, the, they, mafia. Uh, <laughs> the mafia. <laughs> the duck mafia. Yes. Um, on search. On, they, they sell Bitcoin. On keywords, uh, the use of keywords. That's Tesla. So they, so they do sell advertising hits. So the results you get are not really clean. Well, no, that's not entirely true. So what I understand is they just don't collect data. So they don't track you. So you oh. don't, they don't, they don't know like if you've ever searched this thing before, but obviously they know if you are currently searching for new cars. So right. So, so if you're, if you're searching for a Tesla, then, then they'll record that people are searching for Tesla. Well, no, what happens is when you search with Google, if you keep hyping a search term, the hits on top are advertisers that paid to show that to you, not pages that are really best matched to your search term. Right, and DuckDuckGo Duck, just just takes the the keywords. Right, that, that's what they're selling is the information on what keywords are getting searched, not not who is searching for what. So they've just got the same business model as Google in the early days before they expanded into third party cookies and everything. Yeah, sounds like it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know, but they, supposedly they do like privacy, so I'll trust them. Well, now what, now why would they benefit from having email? How are they going to make money from the email? The only way I know to make money is to target ads based on reading your email. I mean, or else put ads on the email page. Mm. But they're, they're not doing bad for what they've been up to. Uh, they, their profits are in the, in the green. Oh, well, that's very unusual. Okay. Well, anyway. I, I've never used them much. I just tried them once or twice and went back to Google, but you know, I'm part of the problem. Uh, anyway, all right. Well, that's it for this one. And we'll be back Friday morning.